Good morning, Rocky Peak. How are you today? Doing all right? 11 a.m., are you awake today? Yeah, all right. You know we always save the best for last, right? Yeah. Hey, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing the series we started last week called Come Alive, and it was this three-week thing that we've created to just really chase after this idea that Jesus has life for us. And I don't know if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back, get the podcast, watch it online. But it's so in, such an important journey that we're on over these three weeks to recognize that Jesus has life for us in this place. And we want to find that life and live in the fullness of it to the extent that we chase after him. And so our hope is that this is meaningful for you over these weeks. Uh, I want to start with a question as we get jumped in today. And, and here it is. Um, how do you respond when somebody says something that you think is totally ridiculous, right? Like, oh, there you go, you laugh, right? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like just what we do, right? Like, like, like maybe you're kind of like, what are you talking about? You may have questions, or depending on what's going on, you may take a step away from that person because they're like, this just seems odd. But, but doesn't it kind of matter who it is that's saying it? Like, doesn't that kind of, like, like it just doesn't matter that someone says something ridiculous. I'm kind of like, well, who is this person to say this thing? It's interesting, there's this, this story that we see in the Gospels, the life of Jesus, and there's this particular day where he and his men had just come across from one side of the lake, and they've headed on to the other side, and, and word has arrived that Jesus has shown up, and so the crowd is excited. They've come to gather around him at the lakeside, because when Jesus was in this season of his life, it's kind of like the heyday of his popularity and his fame, and everyone is like, he's saying incredible things about who God is and what God has for us, and, and he's doing these signs and wonders, and so like if he was selling tickets, it would have been a sold-out tour, right? That's, that's just where his popularity was at, and so in this moment, as he and his crew step off of the boat onto the side of the lake and the crowd comes around them from the town they're visiting. This man comes running through the crowd towards him and, and just falls down in front of him and says, Jesus, would you please come to my home? I need you to show up in my strength. My daughter is dying. I need you to come and do something. If you could just lay your hands on her. And it's like the, this father's heart of desperation and, and Jesus' response is like, okay, let's go. And so then they begin to make their way to his home. But as they're walking, they're pressed in with this crowd around them and there's a woman who had been in that town who had been suffering from bleeding for 12 years and she'd exhausted all of her resources with doctors to try to find hope and cure. And, and she just has this thought, if I can just get close to Jesus, he can do something in my life and in my story. And so she presses into the crowd and she comes up and she's too afraid to ask him. So she just reaches out and touches him. And in that moment, she experiences healing as power comes from him into her story. And then in this moment in the crowd, Jesus just kind of stops and he's like, hey, hold on, something just happened. And he's like, okay, who touched me? And his disciples are like, are you serious? Like, everyone is crowding around you. Like, everyone is touching you. He's like, no, 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 something just happened. And then it just kind of gets really awkward because everyone's like, well, that wasn't me. And then he turns and he sees the woman and he realizes that was her and and I just love Jesus' compassion in his heart to run, run and bring healing and hope into our stories. And, and he looks at her and he's like, daughter, your faith has saved you. You've been healed. Go and live in freedom. And it's just this beautiful moment of just how interruptible Jesus could be as we encounter him. And yet the tragedy of this is that it created a delay. And so as soon as this moment happens, people come from this father's home, this guy Jairus, they come from his house and they say, your daughter has died. Stop bothering the teacher. And Jesus looks at him and he's like, have courage, I'm here. And they make their way to the home. And as they get to the home, there's grief and sadness and there's people wailing and crying and Jesus shows up and, and he comes into that moment and he's like, what's all this commotion about? She's not dead, she's just asleep. And you know how the crowd responded? They laughed at him. Because what he said sounded so ridiculous to them. Like here comes Jesus, the one who's come to do the amazing, the incredible, to bring hope and healing and life. And he says something that just seems so ridiculous and impossible. They respond with incredulity and they laugh. Have you ever done that when Jesus shows up in your story? Like Jesus wants to come into your story and do something incredible and bring hope and healing into places of your life that feel like they're dead or there's no chance of anything ever coming to that place once again. And when he shows up, it seems laughable what he wants to do in your life today. Is it just me? 
Is it just them, or do we still do that today? Which, which I find that so fascinating in my life when I see what Jesus wants to do, and I find it laughable because I live a life of faith in Jesus. Like, I believe he came back from the dead. I believe he defeated death. I believe he's given forgiveness. I believe he's changed my story, and yet I don't always believe that he can do things in my life today. That when he shows up and wants to do things, I oftentimes find it laughable, and I think the reason why we laugh it's not because we think God is limited, it's because we are limited. And so often what we do is we laugh because we view what's possible from the limitation of our perspective instead of trying to imagine what could be possible because of who Jesus is and letting him amaze us and surprise us. And so what would happen if we let the one who said he is the resurrection and the life amaze us? with our story. Because there can be hope in our stories today. We can have a hope that Jesus can do something because listen to what Jesus said he came to bring us. In John 10, 10, Jesus says these words. He says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Like, do not miss this. Jesus is letting us know there is an enemy at work in this world who is not for you. He is trying to end you. He wants to take you out. Where there is life in your story, he wants to put it to death. And Jesus is like, I've, I've come to contend with him. I've come to deal with him. I've come to fulfill the Genesis promise. I've come to crush his head. I will take care of that. But you need to understand, this is what I've come to do for you. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I love that word in, in the Greek, that word life. It's this beautiful word. It's zoe. Have you ever known somebody who is named Zoe. Like it can become a popular moment. I love that whenever you meet someone, because you're like, oh, here comes life. And I love that. Like, here's Jesus. I've come to give Zoe, but not just a little bit. Like, here's a little Zoe for you and a little bit for you. Like, good luck with the rest. He's like, no, I, I've come to give you this life to the full. And when he says those things, there's, at one level, Jesus, I understand what you're saying, because there's this promised hope I have in my story because of you, that one day there will be resurrection in my life. One day the struggle, the challenges will be done but what I wonder is if this is just a someday hope or if this is a life we can begin to experience now as Jesus shows up in our story. Like, is it possible that you have Zoe for me today in places that I've given up hope in? Can you meet me in my life and do something new? And that's what we're gonna chase today as we continue in this series. And so as we, get, as we jump in, I just I wanna pause and, and invite Jesus to come and be a part of this with us. Because of all that happens is you and I have a conversation about life and death, then we leave here, all that happened was you and I had a conversation about life and death. What we need is Jesus to show up and do something incredible. So let's invite him to come and let's posture ourselves before him with the hope of what is possible when Jesus shows up. And so, Jesus, we want to come into your presence in this moment, and we want to acknowledge that we struggle with the promise of life you give us, that there are times that you want to show up in our story, and if we're just going to be completely honest, we laugh. And so can we just set all of that in front of you today and invite you to come and, and surprise us and amaze us, show us that you have the hope of new life for us? Would we dare to believe that there is more of this Zoe we can step into because you have promised life to the full today? And so give us ears to hear what you want to say and give us courage to chase it as we walk into life with you. In your name, amen. Amen, amen. All right, so we are going to jump into this. If you got those message notes, it's going to help you follow along. But last week, Drake kicked us off in this series, and he took us to this very beautiful picture of God showing up in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, in a time when his people were devastated and they'd lost all hope of life. And so you remember, like, Drake gave us a really quick, brief history lesson, but what was going on in the life of God's people at this point in time is that they had generationally walked away from him. And what God had said from the very start, he said, look, I will be your God and you will be my people because it was through them he wanted to reveal his goodness to the world. And yet he had told them, but if you walk away from me, if you chase after the world, you will not find life that will only bring death. And and yet generationally, this is what they'd experienced to the point now that they are living in exile. They're living, every, every part of their life is dead. And yet God wants to show up in this moment through a prophet Ezekiel to remind them that just because it looks like it's death to them, he's not done in the story. And so we see this beautiful encounter going on here in Ezekiel 37. And this is what we read. Ezekiel writes that the hand of the Lord was on me 
and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And so what God is saying is, Ezekiel, I want to show you this place of death. I want to show you this place where it seems like there is no hope of life. Because this is a picture of what it looks like for the people right now. They think it's over. They don't have a sense of hope. But Ezekiel, I want to show up and remind them of who I am and what I can do when you trust me again. And so he asked this question. Verse three, he asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Like Ezekiel, do you believe that it's possible that if I show up in the story, I can bring restoration, that I can bring resurrection into the story once more? And I love Ezekiel's response. I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And you need to understand that is actually a declaration of faith by Ezekiel. I think sometimes we think faith looks like this. God, you're awesome and you can do anything and let's go. And that's not, that's not wrong, but I don't know about you, but sometimes I, the life of faith doesn't always feel like that. And, I, and, and I, I, sometimes I have a hard time with people like that because I'm like, you're just being fake, dude. Don't you know how hard it is? And what I love about Ezekiel in this moment is he's just being real and he's like, God, I'm looking at this place of death. Only you know if there's hope for life here because only you are Lord. There's, if there's any chance of life, it's only because you're here. If there's any chance of life, only you know what that could look like. And in that declaration of faith, acknowledging that only God is the one who can give life, I love what God invites Ezekiel to begin to do. And so he says to me, Ezekiel says, God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Twice, God invites Ezekiel into this part, partnering with him to prophesy over this place. Again, it happens in verse nine. Then he, the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And I love this because in the face of death, God invites Ezekiel to prophesy words of life. And don't miss this, the the words that he's inviting Ezekiel to say, these aren't Ezekiel's words. It's not like God's like, okay, Ezekiel, just prophesy and watch what happens. Like, and Ezekiel's like, I gotta fill out like some weird Christian Hallmark card or send a text, like thoughts and prayers. Like, no, he's saying, prophesy my words because my words are life. Because when God speaks, life happens. These are words of life and power because these are God's words. And only God can bring life. And so when God speaks life, life happens. This is who he is. He's the giver of life. Remember how the beginning story starts in the very beginning? In the beginning, God said. And as we read in that Genesis account, when God spoke, life happened. And so when God speaks, life happens once again. And so I love this this question that he asks. Hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Well, only if. Only if you show up, God. Only if you do something. Only if you bring life. And see, that's our hope, is that God desires to do that. Like God desires to bring life. He wants to rescue and redeem and restore. He wants to bring resurrection into the story. Because that is who he is, and this is our hope. And I love this because not only does God want to bring us into life. God wants to bring his life into us. And we need him to show up and not just bring us life, but bring us the ability to now live that life. And so I love what God promises one chapter earlier in in Ezekiel as he's trying to bring hope to the people once again, and he realizes that they don't have the ability to live that life. He wants to say, I'm going to breathe this life into you, and I'm going to do something new so you can begin to live this life. And so look at what he says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And I love this because not only does God want to give us life, he wants to put his life into us. Because here's the reality, if we're going to experience new life, if new life 2.0 is going to take hold in our story, new life requires new power. 
And what I love is that centuries later, this is exactly what Jesus came to do for us. Jesus who said, I've come that you may have life, life to the full. Jesus promised to fulfill this because remember what he said he would give us? Remember who he had sent to come into us in the story? Who? The Holy Spirit of God that he would give us the spirit of God to be with us. And so in John 14, 15 through 17, look at what Jesus says. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. Don't miss that little bit. Like we could do a whole teaching series just on those words. That for Jesus, this is what love looks like. It doesn't mean you always have warm, fuzzy feelings for me. It means that you believe me enough that you listen and follow. That's what love looks like. Jesus, I trust you enough with my story that I'll go with you wherever you want to go. So he says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. See, here's Jesus. He's fulfilling this ancient promise. And so that place of dry bones, that place of death where God wants to breathe life, we experience the hope of that life when Jesus shows up because he not only brings us into life with him, he puts the spirit of God in us so we are empowered to now live that life. Because when Jesus shows up, we find life and we find power because his spirit is at work in our story. And so how do you respond when Jesus begins to move in your story? when he shows up and begins to want to meet you in places of loss and death and struggle and challenge, how do you respond? Like, is it with expectation and anticipation of what he can do, or is it with cynicism and defeat and incredulity? Like, do you laugh or do you believe when he shows up and wants to do something new in your story? Because if we laugh, we miss out. Because look at what happens here in that story we started with in that account when Jesus shows up to Jairus' home. In Mark 5, let's jump into the story in verse 35. Mark 5, 35, we see that Jesus had just had that encounter with the woman and brought healing into her story. And then in 35, we read this, that while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and they said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And, and I love this because he's like, Jairus, you are not bothering me with this. This is why I've come. Don't be afraid, just believe. And so he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And it's a ridiculous thing to say in the face of death, isn't it? Which is why they laughed at him. And then look at how Jesus responds to the cynicism. Look at how Jesus responds to the laughter. After he put them all out. <laughs> like, 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 don't, like that, that seems so small. Don't miss that. Like when Jesus shows up and all we want to do is laugh, he's like, okay, here's the door. Good luck. But if you want to see what I can do, then stop laughing and start putting some faith into the game. So after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with them and went in where the child was and he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Thank you, Mark, that you did let us know about this. <laughs> and he told them to give her something to eat, right? Because new life needs food. <laughs> and, and I love what we see in this moment in the story because here it is. Jesus shows up to do the, the extraordinary and there are some that laugh and they missed out. Where there are some who believed and they got to experience the power of resurrection. They got to see what God was up to, what Jesus was capable of in the story. And I wrestle with this in my own life because there's so many times that, that Jesus will show up and I laugh. And, and I think part of the reason why they laugh is because they don't understood who showed up that day. 
Like they thought this was just the cool teacher. This is the guy that would feed us fish. Like they didn't have a clue of who this was. And so they laughed instead of saying, maybe this guy knows what he's doing. And see, I think it's easy for us to miss out what Jesus wants to do in our story when he shows up because we don't have a full picture of who he is. And I love how John describes who Jesus is as he begins his account of Jesus' life. Listen to what John says about Jesus. This is like not a baby. John, I love it. John doesn't start with a baby in a manger. John starts with who Jesus was before he came. And so in John 1.1, he writes these words. He says, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Like he's the creator of everything. Come to walk with us. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And see, when Jesus shows up, we got to decide, do I believe that he's capable or do I laugh because I'm cynical? Do I believe that he can do something in my story? Because they view Jesus through the limitation of their perspective and they laugh and they missed out. But what if we allow Jesus to be all that he is? What if we allowed him to come into the fullness of our story and bring the fullness of life he promised? What would we dare to believe is possible? When Jesus says, I've come to give you life, if I believe that he can come and do things that I, I don't think are possible when he shows up in my story. See, because I, I don't know about you, but I don't come here as a part of our church week after week. I don't come here simply to learn about an ancient document. Like, though I believe that through this book, God has revealed himself, that there is life to be found in the pages of this book, I don't come here simply to learn about the book. I come here to discover more about the one whom this story is about. Because that's who I need in my life. I need Jesus to show up because I need the hope of what he can do in my story. I need him to come into my life and breathe life into me once again because there are places that are dark and dead and scary in my story. How about you? And what I need is the hope of healing and forgiveness. I need grace and mercy. I need to know that there can be power put into my life that can transform me and change me from the inside out so that the places of death don't own me anymore. I need Jesus to show up because there are places in my life that are in desperate need of the hope of resurrection. Because I've got graves in my story. So many that I have a graveyard and it's easy in that place in my life to settle for death, to think that those are places that are untouchable, that life can never come into that, to just kind of give up and say, well, someday I have a hope, but until then, I'm just gonna walk around in the graveyard and just know that there's no chance of life in this place. Instead of saying, Jesus, is it possible that you can show up in my life and do something new in this place? Like Jesus, is it possible that instead of laughing, I could step back and say, maybe it's possible you could come in and bring life because these are the places that I need the hope of something new. Do you have any places like that in your life? Like, are there places in your life today that seem beyond hope? Areas where it feels like there's only death and loss and the thought of life coming back to you to those places, it seems laughable today. Because if you do, guess what? You've got a graveyard too. And you've got graves in your story. So what if we invited Jesus to come into the graveyard? And we invited him to do what only he can do and to bring the life he said he could bring. And what if we leverage this key called faith to unlock the graveyard and invite Jesus to come and walk with us amongst the graves and to bring life to the places that we thought where there was only death? to bring us the hope of something new. And see, faith is not some blind belief or wishful thinking or pretending that everything is fine when it's not. Faith is saying, Jesus, this is death and I need you to bring life. Jesus, this is a place in my life that I've given up hope, but I need to, I need to invite you to come in. I'm trusting you to be who you said you are and to do what you said you could do. And will I dare to trust you once again? And so this is what faith looks like when I walk into the graveyard with Jesus. I bring a shovel, trusting that he's bringing life. And I invite him to come to those places of death. 
And so let's talk about some of those today. Let's, let's enter the grave and invite Jesus to come into the story with us and see what it looks like to find faith in him and the possibility that he's got some zoe for us today in those places where we think there's only death. And so here's one of my graves. As we walk among the graves, I have some graves that look like this. It's the grave of broken dreams. You got any graves like that in your story? Like places where you've just experienced loss and sadness and you don't know if there's any sense of hope of life in those again. Maybe for you that grave is like a place that you once dreamed of living. Like a place that you thought was where you wanted to set up roots and build your life. And for whatever reason, circumstance or challenge or whatever, you've, not, you've been like pulled away from that. And that place is like a distant land that you wish you could get back to. Or maybe that place, that grave for you is a person that you had hoped to share your life with. And for whatever reason, they're gone now. Maybe through the tragedy of death or the tragedy of dark choices, they've walked out of your story, but they're no longer a part of it anymore. Or maybe it's the hope of that person who has yet to show up in your story and it just feels like a grave of a broken dream. Or maybe that grave for you is the possibility of what you wanted your life to look like, but your life doesn't look anything like that. Like, remember when we were kids and we used to dream and we thought we were going to the moon? And now you're like, I haven't even left California. You're like, what is going on with my story, God? Like, I, I thought there was more to my story. And in those places of broken dreams, we invite Jesus to come to that grave with us and we invite him to come and breathe the breath of life. And as we do that, something begins to happen. One of the things that begins to happen is that I, that I begin to be honest with my hurt and my pain and I begin to grieve with him as I allow him to meet me with his grace, his mercy, his hope, his healing, his peace. I don't live in denial about this. I acknowledge the reality of the pain of it. And then as I begin to be honest with him, I also begin to wrestle with him about it. Which is, why did you let this happen? Jesus, why didn't you fulfill this dream? And it's one of those things where we actually learn to be honest with him about our hurt and our disappointment and our prayer, and we actually pray with him about it. That's called faith, inviting Jesus to come. Because Jesus, I need, to, I need your help to understand this because if there's gonna be the hope of life, I need you to show up. And oftentimes as I begin to do that with Jesus in the, at the grave of brokenness in my story, something begins to happen because not only do I, I wrestle with my grief, I wrestle with him over my frustration and hurt, oftentimes what he'll begin to show me is, Joy, you need to understand that part of the challenge about this grave for you is that you were taking a good thing and you were making the ultimate thing and this was actually an idol in your life. And I have to begin to learn how to surrender that to him in that place and invite him to come and do what only he can do. And as we begin to realize that Jesus is standing there with us, something begins to make sense, or we begin to understand something, that broken dreams do not mean that life is over. And I remember experiencing the reality of this. 1999, for me, is probably up there as one of the toughest years of my life. I've lived a few tough ones since then. We just went through a few of them, right? <laughs> But 1999 is still up there as a challenging one because at the beginning of that year, I was wrapping up school, I was stepping into the future of my life, and let me tell you, I had dreams for my life. I had three dreams. One of those dreams was this girl that I thought was the one. Another dream was this place on the other side of LA that I thought was where I was gonna set down roots and this was the church I was gonna be a part of. And the other dream, the third dream, was the possibility of a future as I was stepping into ministry and thinking like, all right, Jesus, here we go, and I'm gonna lead in your church and it's gonna be awesome. And at the beginning of that year, all three of those dreams were taken away because I wasn't the one for her. There was no room in the inn at the place that I was dreaming about and no one wanted to hire me. And I'm standing at the precipice of this moment of my life and it's like every dream I had has just been put into the dirt. God, what are you doing? Jesus, where are you in this moment? What is happening? And I remember wrestling with them in this moment. And then somewhere in the, the first half of that year, I'd had dinner with my parents and I was dropping them off at their home. I was leaving their house, heading back to my place. And as I turn off of their street, I look up and I see these headlights coming down and I realize bro is in my lane and we are about to collide. And we have this head-on collision where my car gets crunched. And I remember in that moment, just thinking a couple of things. If I go loose, maybe I'll be okay. And Jesus, keep me safe. Like that was it. 
boom. And then the collision hits, the car gets smashed up on the side of the curb. And I remember that everything kind of settles down and I'm sitting in the dark and I do like the pat down to make sure I'm okay. And I'm like, I don't feel anything and I think that's a good thing, but I'm not sure yet. And then I try to open my door and I can't because it's jammed closed. And so I have to crawl out the other side of the car and I go and I sit in the curb and shock is setting in and I'm just sitting there trembling, realizing I think I'm okay, but that was insane. And then I'm watching the driver of the other car as he's pulling all the bottles out of his car, putting them in the dumpster. And I'm like, well, thanks. I'm okay, bro. Thank you. And and then I hear the sirens spinning, and I'm like, okay, they'll deal with him. And again, I think I'm okay. But as I'm sitting there, and the shock of the moment is setting in, I just remember thinking, God, what is going on? Like, why this on top of all of that? Like, where are you in the story? And as I was just emoting in that moment with him, I remember like he showed up, and it's like this thought he pressed on me. And it was a very simple idea, but it went like this. Joel, if I was done with you, this would have been your homecoming. And what I began to realize in that moment as I was wrestling with him is that I'm still here. Yeah, there's graves of broken dreams in my story in this moment, but God, I'm still here. I'm still breathing, which means that maybe you're not done with my story. And I love how Paul writes this to the Philippians in Philippians 1, 3 through 6. He writes these words to them, these beautiful words of how God is still doing something in us. And he says this, he goes, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, he's still at work in the story. He's still doing something in you. He still has plans for you. A broken dream doesn't mean that God is done. It means he's going to do something new. And this is what faith looks like as we stand in that grave with Jesus with us. Faith is this. Faith is having the audacity to hope again. The hope that you've got a life for me, that you're doing something to realize that he's not done with the story, that he still has good things in store for you. And let me tell you, the farther I've moved in time away from 1999, the more I can look back at the story and the more I can see God's goodness despite the struggle to the point where I actually now thank him for those broken dreams. Because if all those dreams had come true, I'd have so much of my life that I'm missing out on. I would not have met Christy had I worked it out with that other one. <laughs> Let me tell you, God gave me an upgrade. <laughs> I wouldn't have my daughters. I wouldn't get to be church with you. And see, one of the things that we have to learn to do when we stand at the graves, is like what God invites Ezekiel to do in the Valley of Dry Bones, and he says, prophesy to this place, Ezekiel. Speak words, not your words, Ezekiel. Speak my words into this moment. And we need to learn to take God's word and speak it into those places to remind ourselves that there is life and there is hope in his name. And so when you're standing at the grave of broken dreams, you say things like this. Thank you, you're not done with my story. Thank you that there is a work you were doing and you will complete it, which means you have dreams for my life I don't even see yet. And so in this place, I'm going to hold on to hope, and I'm going to declare the hope that in all things you work for the good. I can't wait to see how you bring good out of this but I believe that you have more in my story. And we invite Jesus to come to the grave and walk with us. That's just one grave. I don't know about you, I've got a lot more in my graveyard. <laughs> this grave actually, a broken, it's kind of like a whole section. <laughs> a broken dream, broken dream, broken dream. God, I don't get it. And God's like, life isn't fair. Life doesn't work the way I wanted, but I'm good. Do you chill trust me? Okay, can you bring life here and here and here? But I have other graves in my graveyard. How about you? Here's another grave that shows up often in my story. It's the grave of fear and anxiety. Do you know what I hate about fear? I hate how it is so overwhelmingly powerful in my life when it shows up. Like when fear shows up, like it's a cancer that just erodes all, all courage in my story. 
Like fear is such a powerful thing when it looms in our lives. I remember experiencing fear with my family when we were still living in Canada. We went to like this nature preserve that had this beautiful canyon, uh, like cliffs and on the sides. And at the top of it was this zip line that you could take that would take you all the way to the bottom. But the hike to the top was pretty interesting because there was these, these bridges that you had to cross, two that you had to go back and forth, these suspension bridges that were like 15 stories high. And so I remember as we do this hike, like this is going to be a family adventure moment. Yay, let's do this. And so we come to the first suspension bridge and Christy heads out across. And then my daughters who were like, like eight and 10 at the time, they like, they head out on the bridge and they're like, this is awesome. And I step out on that bridge and I take one step and I seize up because all I can see is me falling. <laughs> all I can see is what's straight below me. And then I look at my daughters just having fun and they're bouncing on the bridge and I'm like, stop it. <laughs> like, no, you're going to kill us. And And like it took every ounce of gumption, whatever the word is. You know how like you just gotta like dig into that barrel and like, do I have anything down here to just step across the bridge? And we get to their side, I'm like, okay, we're gonna make it. And then I realized the idiots designed the trail that there's another bridge we have to walk across now (laughs) to get to the top. And then we finally get to the top, and there's this beautiful zip line. So my wife and my oldest daughter, they get to do the zip line, but my youngest daughter is too young and I'm too cheap, so we don't get to do the zip line. which means we've got to walk all the way back across the bridges once again. And so now it's just me and my eight-year-old, and I'm like, hey, little girl, I need every courage you've got. Like, give it to daddy so we can get across these bridges. And see, like, that's what fear is, right? The reason fear is so powerful, because this is how fear works. Look at me. I own you, Right? And it's a powerful thing when it shows up in our story. Do you remember Peter's experience with this in his own life? His own fear in the moment where he's out in the middle of the boat with his buddies. And it's like this moment where they've been working with Jesus. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to deal with the crowds. You guys get in the boat, head on the other side. I'll catch up with you. What I love in that moment is they don't ask Jesus, how are you going to catch up with us? Because like Jesus isn't worried. He's like, I'll get there. I got this, right? And so he goes and spends some time with the father that night. Meanwhile, they're in the boat, and they're in the middle of this raging storm, and Jesus is like, I'm coming, and he just walks out on water towards them. Now, they're freaking out. They think it's a ghost, and then someone's like, no, I think it's Jesus. Remember what Peter does? Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And I love Peter, because he's the idiot, right? Like He's he's like the dumb one in the group, and I got to wonder if the other ones are like, what are you talking about? And then here's Jesus' response. Come. I love that because Jesus was like, Peter, I know what you're capable of because you're with me, so let's do this. And I love Peter. He's got got just this crazy courage enough to like, okay, let's do this. And he steps out of the boat. Remember the story, how it goes? Like, we don't know how far he gets, but he walks on water until he suddenly realizes, oh, we're in the middle of a storm? And there's Jesus. Sorry, Jesus, there's a storm, and the storm overwhelms him, and then he begins to drown. And then I love that Jesus is just right there. He grabs him. Like, Peter was never alone in that storm. Jesus was with them. And then they climb back in the boat, and then Jesus is like, Peter, where's your faith? Which I'm like, you ask him where is his faith? Like, what about the other guys that never even got out of the boat? (laughs) But see, that's what fear does, is it's so overwhelming. And here's the thing, for some of us, fear is just like an occasional reality that we experience an intense moment in life, and we get on the other side, and we're like, wow, that was crazy, wasn't it? But for some of us, fear and anxiety are constant. Like, they're the baseline emotion of how we experience life. Like, the storm is always coming. Everyone else can see sunshine and blue skies. And all we think of is there's a storm. There's a storm. There's a storm. And it grips us and controls us. And when that happens, fear and anxiety become a place of death in our lives because they steal life from us. So how do we bring Jesus into that moment? To invite him to come to us to this grave, it's not a passive endeavor. Because to bring Jesus to the grave of fear and anxiety is to let Jesus call us to do something with our fear and our anxiety. Because what Jesus will call us to do is in the face of fear, he'll invite us to bring those to him. Because what Jesus wants us to discover is that in the midst of the fear that we're facing, he is greater than the storm which is why he invites us to focus on him while we're going through it. And see, this is what faith is when we're in the midst of that place. Faith is learning to shift our focus and fix our eyes on Jesus. 
I love how the writer of Hebrews captures this, this idea that faith is this journey, a race that we're running. And, and he writes these words, he goes, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and I love this because it's this, this thing, hey, fix your eyes on Jesus. But here's why Jesus can help us. He understands fear and anxiety because he experienced it in his own story. Do you remember what he went through on the night he was arrested as he's praying in the garden to the Father? Three times he cries out, is there any other way we can do this? Not my will, but yours be done. And we're told that it was so much angst in that moment, he's literally sweating blood. And yet what the writer of Hebrews is helping us understand is that Jesus overcame because he was looking to a greater moment that was gonna come. Which means like, Jesus, you can help me because not only do you get it, but you know how to overcome. This is why Jesus says things like, hey, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And here's what I think we need to understand about this, this fear and the anxiety that we can wrestle with. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is learning to shift our focus off of our fears onto the one who is greater when we are in the midst of it. And to let Jesus meet us in the storm and show us that he is greater. One of the ways this grave has had its grip on me in my life and in my story is that I struggle with insecurity in my life. To the point where there's times where like there's so much fear and anxiety, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I can do the things that you've called me to, Jesus. And I remember wrestling with this really deeply when our family had moved to Canada and we're, we're there like inheriting this church and picking up all the things and, and, and realizing that, hey, this is actually a hot mess that we got to experience. Like, to, thank you for the glossy brochure, but this wasn't in the brochure. And, and you know, one of the things that they never taught me when I went to school to be like, when I went to pastor school, is that like leading you is hard. <laughs> like it, it is. Like one of the things, like they didn't tell us, oh, hey, and the sheep bite. Like, like, oh, when you said feed my sheep, that means even when they bite me? Okay, great. And so we're there like for a few years and we're just in the thick of it trying to like bring, bring Jesus and his healing into the church and, and we're wrestling with it. And I'm just, I, I'm at the end of my rope after three years. And I remember going to my friend, Mark, who was one of my, my colleagues at the church and he was like our, our care pastor and stuff. And I'm like, I, I need you to find me somebody who is safe to talk with because I don't know if I can keep doing this. And so I remember he, he finds a counselor in a city that he, he connects me with and she has shared faith. So I have a willingness to trust the perspective that we're gonna share as we walk through things together. And, and I remember the first day I met her, I sit down in the couch and, and I'm like, this is weird because normally I sit there, but now I'm over here. And, and she's like, so why are you here? And the subtext of that question is what's wrong with you and what do you need, right? But they, they ask it nicer than that. <laughs> and I just like, I was like, I, I, I don't understand why in my story I have such deep-seated insecurities that almost cripple me at times to the point that I doubt the decisions that I'm called to make and all this stuff. And anyway, she just kind of listens graciously. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's just set up some rhythms of meeting and just like talk through this. And I remember like after our second or third meeting, she made this observation about me as I had been sharing with her. And she says, Joel, it sounds like every time you talk about these insecurities in your life, it's like there's this part of yourself that you want to hunt down and kill so you can move forward. And she's like, what's interesting about that is that you won't even be safe with yourself to process this. And I'm like, I don't like what you just said. <laughs> like, but I think you're right. And so we just continued to press in and I continued to like, Jesus, I just need help in this area. And after months of counseling, like, I, I don't know when you know you're done. It's not like they give you a diploma, like, here you go. But like we, we kind of arrived at an ending. And let me tell you, you know what months of counseling taught me? I have insecurities and I don't know why. But Jesus already knew that about me. And he chose me anyways. And so here's how I invite Jesus to come to this grave with me. I'm freaking out, Jesus. You want me to lead, you want me to teach, you want me to do all these things. You know I'm not alpha, you know I'm not these things. I'm upset, I'm kind of freaking out, I'm scared. And I think what Jesus will often say to me is like, when has this ever been about you? 
I chose you, so let's go. And what I've come to learn about this in my story as I, as I seek to wrestle with this, as I learn to shift my focus off of myself and onto him, as I've come to realize, hey, yeah, I've got insecurities, but when I look at Jesus, they don't have me anymore. And I find freedom in this place. And what I've had to learn in my story is to prophesy words of life to myself. God's words, not my words, God's words. Okay, God, you said that I am enough because you've come into my story. Not that I'm enough, but you're enough. My, my strength, God, your strength is made perfect in my weakness. And so if I'm weak, then I'm strong because that, re- that causes me to rely on you to let you show up in my story. And so in fear and trembling, I say yes, and I watch him show up and it, it amazes me. And so friends, if you're wrestling with this grave, I just want to encourage you, prophesy words of life, his words into this place and shift your focus to him and let him bring life to you. But I've got more graves, how about you? (laughs) Oh, I got a graveyard. Let me tell you, there are some graves though that they are harder to talk about than other graves and this is one of them. As we walk among the graves and invite Jesus to come with us, there's a grave that I encounter in my story. It's called the grave of shame. And shame is one of those challenging things that we wrestle with in our story. Shame has many faces. But it's always the result of something that's been done. Either something that's been done to us or something that we have done that we're ashamed of. And the longer we live with shame, the more it messes us up. Because shame is a powerful defeater in life. Because what shame wants to do is it wants to rewrite our identity and tell us that we're less than who we were created to be. And so when shame surfaces, it messes us up. And we see this, this is not just a unique problem, I think, to to you and me. This is a problem that the human race wrestles with because we see our first parents and their dance with shame in the beginning story. Like in this beautiful story of God's creation and God like breathing life into us, making us in his image, male and female, creating us so that we would reflect him in the created world, this beautiful world that God gives us. He's like, hey, you're free to enjoy everything. There's just one thing that's not for you. I don't want you to have this knowledge of good and evil because it's not gonna be good for you because the way you will have knowledge of good and evil is because you've experienced evil and I don't want that for you. He was like wanting to protect us. And then we're told that the serpent comes into the story. The deceiver comes in and finds our first parents and takes God's words and twists them and contradicts them and tells them he's holding out on you. If you eat this thing, that's how you'll find life. And they bought the lie. And the moment they did it, they experienced everything God was trying to protect them from. And they experienced sin and shame entered the story. And they began to hide from each other and from God. And so that's what Satan likes to do in our lives, to use shame to take us out of the game. Because he'll come to us and he'll tell us, the life you're looking for is not found in the path God has for you. He's holding out on you. If you want happiness, if you want fulfillment, here's how you find it. You chase it this way. And don't worry if God says it's not good. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And we buy the lie. We believe that if we do this thing, it will lead us into life. And then we take that bite. We step into that place. And instead of finding life, we find death. And then shame shows up and Satan shows up and rubs our faces in it and says, you're a terrible person. That's his game. That's why he's the thief who comes to kill and steal and destroy. And yet our hope when we're standing at this grave of shame over the things that we're wrestling with, our hope is that God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and his provision is greater than our shame. And again, we see this in the very beginning story that when God shows up and they begin to play the blame game and to hide from him and and point fingers at everyone but themselves. And God's like, there is a consequence to this, but I'm giving the promise of a hope to come in that moment. As they had made clothing for themselves out of the the figs and stuff, God's like, I'm gonna cover you. And we're seeing in that very beginning moment that God actually takes part of his creation and kills it to make clothing for them. He has a sacrifice that covers their shame. It's foreshadowing of the ultimate hope that we have that Jesus is gonna step in the story and he will be the sacrifice that now covers our shame as he gives his life for us. And as we stand at the grave of shame, this is what faith looks like. We look at what Paul talks here in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the hope that we have of Jesus showing up in our story. Therefore, if, if, if anyone is in Christ... 
The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Does it sound like Paul's echoing the hope of what God said in Ezekiel 36? I will put a new spirit in you. I will move you to follow me. Does it sound like Paul understood what Jesus had done in his own story? And see, this is what faith looks like as we stand at the grave of shame and invite Jesus to do something new. Faith is standing in our new identity and shedding the old. As we look to Jesus to do what only he can do. See, faith is receiving the power of God's forgiveness in our lives. See, if shame is the result of something that's been done, then the freedom we find in Jesus is a result of something he has done for us. His sacrifice, his taking our shame upon himself. And because shame is one of those things that can be so isolating in our story, I think it's important that we understand that we not only need to bring Jesus to that grave, we need to bring each other to our graves of shame. Because I don't know about you, but there are times when I forget who I am and I need my family, I need my brothers and sisters to remind me who I am because of Jesus and my story. I need people, the church, I need you to prophesy his words of life into my life when I'm standing at the grave of shame. Hey, Joel, shame is not your name. You belong to Christ. You are a new creation. You have been set free. This doesn't own you anymore. And again, we invite Jesus to come to the grave so that he can bring life into the place that seems like it's only death. I also have another grave. This is a particularly stubborn grave in my graveyard. (laughs) This is the grave of bitterness. Do you know anyone like this? You can elbow them, they need to pay attention. See, bitterness is one of those things that binds us up in our hurt and anger as we obsess over how we've been wronged. And the reason why this is such a tricky grave is because when bitterness shows up in my life, it doesn't necessarily feel like death. It feels like power. Because bitterness is one of those weird things, that that this weird sense of entitlement that I have. Well, I'm right to feel this way because I've been hurt. And it feels like that anger and that hurt are giving me power, but they're not. It's not actually bringing me life. It's not empowering. What bitterness is, it's ultimately imprisoning me in my hurt. But I don't see it that way. And I just, no, it's not a grave. I feel like I'm alive, but I'm not alive. I'm just like a zombie walking around the graveyard. Just this walking dead bringing hurt every place he goes because of the bitterness in my story. And the reason this is such a dangerous grave is because we think we're alive when we're not. And hurt People hurt people. There are people around me that have wounds because of bitterness they never caused in my story, but because I'm not experiencing freedom and healing, I just hurt people who are in proximity to me. Or I'm not a fun zombie to hang out with because when we hang out, it's all about me. It's all about my hurt. It's all about my hurt. It's all about my hurt. And you're like, can we talk about something else? No, because it's all about me. And see, freedom and life are not found in holding on to our bitterness. Freedom and life are found in learning to do the ridiculously impossible thing. Forgiving when we've been hurt. I laugh at Jesus at this grave a lot. Really? That's what you want me to do? Don't you understand what they've done to me? Don't you understand that they've hurt me? And I think in his grace and kindness, he'll look at me and he says, yeah, but don't you understand what I've done for you? Don't you understand what you did to me? But what I chose to do for you? And this is why Paul will write these words to the Colossians in 3.13. These, these, this incredible verse, he's talking about what our relationship should look like as we walk together as followers of Christ. And so he says this, he says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let me tell you when I love this verse. When I need you to forgive me. That's where I'm like, hey, bro, here it is. You gotta forgive me. Bible says so. Let me tell you when I hate this. When I'm the one who needs to forgive you. And that's where I get hung up. I'm like, Jesus, I can't do this. 
This is beyond me. And I miss the, 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 the sense of the key of hope here is in what Paul says in that little phrase, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Because when, when, when I need to forgive another person, I think I'm the one who has to write the check. And what Jesus is saying, like, no, I've bankrolled you. I've already forgiven you so much more than you even realize. All you got to do is carry that check forward and pass it off to them because I've done so much in your story. You need to forgive as I've forgiven you. And what faith looks like in this place of the grave of bitterness is this. Faith is letting go of our right to be hurt and grabbing hold of our freedom in forgiveness. And faith is learning to give that same forgiveness that's already been given. It's letting that overflow of his grace and mercy in my life spill out to the lives of other people. I think one of the reasons why I wrestle with forgiveness is because when he calls me to forgive another person, it feels like I'm letting them get away with it, right? That's not what's happening, actually. When we forgive another person, what we're saying is, Jesus, they're your problem. Thank you that you've set me free. I need to learn how to practice forgiveness, and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to look at what you've done for me, and wow, that was a lot, so thank you. Can you deal with them now? And let me tell you, he'll handle them far better than you ever will. And he may want to bring forgiveness in their story, in which case I get bitter again. <laughs> in which case he reminds me, I'm enough for you and everyone else because in the same way I paid the price for you, I will pay the price for them. No one gets away with it because forgiveness isn't free. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. And I just have to learn how to write checks with his name on it now. Okay. You're his. Okay, you're his. And you know what the amazing thing about this one is? Sometimes forgiveness works like this. I trust you in faith to forgive, and I'm set free. But more often than not, this is what the grave of bitterness looks like to me. I wake up, and I realize I'm a zombie again. <laughs> and I have to invite him to come in and remind me of who he is and what he's done for me so that I can choose forgiveness again and walk in freedom that next day. And again, this is something we've got to learn to prophesy God's words into our story. All right, Lord, you've, you've called me to forgiveness as a forgiven person, so help me to embrace Colossians 3.13. Help me to forgive as you have forgiven me. And as I like to learn to pray for my life and my story, I'm going to embrace the prayer you taught me to pray. And in that prayer, one of the things you taught me to pray is forgive me my sins as I forgive others. And so I'm going to focus on what you've done for me because when I focus on you, that's when I get over me and find freedom in my story. And we prophesy his words of life over these places of death so that he can bring the hope of Zoe into our story. And so what are the graves in your life? I think we could talk for hours about those graves. Here's just some, but the same principle applies. What we need to learn to do is to invite Jesus to come into the graveyard with us so he can bring the hope of life into those places. And so I want to I share with you something Jesus says to encourage you in the journey as you follow him and invite him to do what only he can do in your story. Here's some words that I have to remind myself of. I hope they're encouraging to you. Jesus says this in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, that's supposed to be encouraging? You know why that's encouraging? Because Jesus is helping to remind me that my limitations don't limit him. Because the full context of what Jesus says in John 15 is this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I.e., but with me, anything's possible. And see, the reason I don't always like to go into the graveyard is that I oftentimes go in the graveyard on my own thinking that I can figure this out. And when I go in the graveyard by myself and I bring that shovel, you know what I dig up? I dig up bones. I dig up death. I dig up pain and hurt. But when I invite the one who is able to do more than I could hope or imagine to come into the graveyard with me, the hope I have is that when Jesus opened graves, he brings forth life. And so let's be a people that invite Jesus to come into the story, to bring the life to the full he promised us so that we can experience more of that life today in the hope of the ultimate life to come. And so Jesus, we want to come into this moment and just acknowledge 
that there are times when you want to show up and our natural response is to laugh. So don't let us laugh when you want to bring life. Let us hear the words that you would say to us. Don't be afraid. Have courage. Have faith. I have shown up. I am more than enough. I can come into the place of pain and loss and hurt. I can come into the graveyard. I can bring life to you once more. And so thank you that you remind us of our limitations so that we can look beyond ourselves to you. And so here in this place, would you come and remind us that because of you, you are enough even when we're not. And so come and bring life. Come and bring hope. Come and awaken your spirit in us and bring us into the fullness of life you've promised us. Amen, amen.